This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for respectful conversation about difficult subjects. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about telling difficult stories, and we're going to be focusing tonight on secrets. My guest is Dr. Evan Imber Black, who is a family therapist and the program director and professor in the master's program in marriage and family therapy at Mercy College. She's also the director of the Center for Families and Health at the Ackerman Institute for the Family in New York City and the editor of the Journal of Family Process. Dr. Evan Imber Black is the former president of the American Family Therapy Academy. She's written two books on secrets. The one that we're going to be talking about tonight is The Secret Life of Families. In an era when talk shows have made revealing painful secrets into a form of entertainment, Dr. Imber Black offers a sobering voice about the complexities of deciding when and how to tell loved ones about painful truths that have felt too dangerous to share. Welcome to Safe Space. Good evening. So let's start out with why are secrets toxic? In terms of what starts to make something a toxic secret, and I use that term in the book, to mean secrets that poison relationships over time, that uh, when there is a secret, uh, it could be something that goes back two or three or more generations, there starts to be a silencing in the family, not just around the topic of the toxic secret, but many other subjects start to go off limits in a kind of interactional play, if you will, that if we talk about this, pretty soon we're going to be talking about that, and then we're going to be over here talking about what we all know we mustn't be talking about. And so very much when, in my own experience in therapy, working with families where there is a central secret, there are usually more secrets. There are usually more things that become extremely difficult to talk about. Could you give me an example of what what, what would maybe be a, a secret like this that kind of drives an even larger and wider wedge of silence? Sure. Let me just uh, describe a, a family that came to see me a number of years ago where they were, this was a family of uh, two parents and an adolescent son and a pre-adolescent daughter. They were referred by the school system because of concerns about the boy. Uh, he had recently stolen money from a teacher's desk drawer. Another child saw him do it and reported it, and when he was confronted, he became extremely argumentative and threatening to the teacher, at which point the school said, they called the parents, and they said, you need to go and get some therapy. Uh, They came to see me and described a very interesting pattern with the boy, which was that every fall, from about mid-September to mm, the end of October, he became extremely problematic in the family. Uh, And as he had grown, the problems he was getting into were getting more and more complicated, starting to involve the outside world, school, friends, and so forth. It was a little strange story that it was these six or seven weeks out of the year that he became problematic and that most of the rest of the time he was a perfectly fine kid. He got okay grades. He played sports. He had friends. 
And when I tried to explore a little bit with the family, was there anything that they could remember that perhaps happened around that time of year? Absolutely not, absolutely not was the answer. Um, And this went on for a couple of sessions. I tried, as most family therapists would do, to explore a little bit about extended family, and the parents stopped me. We don't need to talk about that. We're only here to talk about our son. Uh, About the third session, the parents showed up alone. Uh, They said the boy had a game, and they didn't see any point in coming just with the daughter. And I thought, good, Uh, this is a good opportunity for us to explore a little bit things that might be difficult to talk about with the children present. In that session, what emerged was a core secret in the family, which was that the biological father of this boy was not the man sitting in the room with me who the boy thought was his biological father. Rather, his biological father was killed in a car accident, drunk, when the boy was just an infant. And the entire extended family on the mother's side had urged her never to tell the boy about his biological father. Now, no great surprise, when did the father die? In October. And supposedly he knows nothing about this. As we explored what happens in the family late September, early October, in the kind of run-up to the anniversary of the father's death, so that the mother gets very sad, she pulls away. She pulls away from her children. She pulls away from her husband, spends a lot of time alone in her room, and in the theory that I hold that kids would much rather have a mad mom than a sad mom, this boy starts to go into high gear, acting out all over the place, and pretty soon everybody's distracted by him, and the family gets through the period of time, it's November, and things settle down. So here's an example of a toxic secret that is affecting this child, and his behavior. He's getting into more and more trouble in the outside world. The relationship between him and his mother, between him and his sister, because he would go into her room and tear things up and so forth, and the relationship between him and the man who is, in fact, his stepfather, except he doesn't know it. So that's an example for you. Does that It's a wonderful example. I have so many different responses to it. I mean, one is I'm so struck, and so many of the examples in your book also reflect this, how the person who doesn't know the secret, the outsider, does so much of their behavior is ultimately shaped by this thing that they don't know, but they sense it. Precisely. And And they can't even maybe even put a a name on what they're sensing, but it has this enormous power in their life, almost like this invisible magnet. That's right. And, you know, when the secret finally emerged after my working with the parents and kind of coaching them as to how they could do this in a good way, I then met with him alone, um, and I said to him, did you know? And he said, you know, I didn't know what it was, but I knew they were keeping something from me. And I think kids do sense that. And then they're confused and they grow anxious, and out of that anxiety they do all sorts of things. 
You said something really intriguing that I've never heard before, that children prefer a mad mom to a sad mom. Yes. And I'm curious, do you mean by that that they'd rather get what other people call sort of negative attention, like the mother's active and correcting them, than a sad mom who's really withdrawn and That's not right. engaging? I think, I think seeing your parents scared when you're a young person is a, is, is, seeing your parents sad when you're a young person is a scary thing. Yes. Um, and kids don't know what to do with that. Anger they know, because anger is like what family doesn't have, angry interaction, and that they can they can live through pretty well. But when they see a parent withdrawing and looking sad and looking down, and they don't know what it's about, I think that is very frightening for children. Yes. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Dr. Evan Imberblack about secrets and telling secrets in families. So I'd like to work with the same story, if you don't mind. Sure. And, and find out, it sounds like you worked with the family. I'd like to hear from you about when you are trying to help someone reveal a secret, how do you think about what that preparation needs to involve, and how do you set it up to go okay. well? Yeah, no, I think that's extremely important. I mean, one of the things I always want to know is who knows the secret and who doesn't know the secret. That what what you want to think about is um, secrets are relational. If you're keeping a secret with yourself, that's one thing. But as soon as you tell one other person, the secret starts to be relational. And the question, if, uh, let's say in this case, if the mother and stepfather are going to decide to open this, are there other voices that they're hearing that say, no, no, don't do it, it would be bad, terrible things are going to happen, so forth. And indeed, in this particular situation, the mother's mother, the grandmother, was very against them opening this. Now, um, in this particular situation, the mother felt that she could go and talk to her mother and explain to her that they had decided to do this, that they felt this was the best thing for their family, and that even if her mother was upset about it, that she was prepared to go ahead with this. In other situations, I, I might have, for instance, the mom bring in her mom to a session so that we could talk this over and find out her objections. I think when you make a deal, let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago with someone and you promise, I'm never going to open this, that when you're going to change your position on that, that there's an ethical requirement that you go back and let that person know. Not, not to ask their permission, not, you know, not for that, but to, but to let them know, look, my circumstances have changed. I can't keep that promise I made to you 15 years ago. In this particular family, there were a lot of issues about the original father, the biological father. Her family never liked him from the beginning. They were very young. She was like 17. She was pregnant before they got married, uh, and he was uh, a very serious alcoholic. And so there were many, many things, you know, in this mix. There were social class differences between them. And um, so it took that step as well, where the mother had to go and talk to her mother. So that's, that's one thing. Second thing, even before you get to, all right, let's plan how we're going to do this, people are very often mixed about 
part of me wants to open this and get this resolved. Part of me is very scared to open this. And so I will usually suggest to people a homework task where they look at every relationship in the family, every pair relationship, maybe certain triangular relationships, the family as a whole, and consider the risks and benefits of opening the secret. Um, In my experience, most people have thought only about the risks. They can give you a list as long as your arm. They have not thought about the benefits. And so this particular assignment embeds them in their whole social network uh, mentally and helps them to start to think through, now, if I did open this, where would I find relief? Where would I think this might be good for my son to hear stories about his original father, and and on and on and on, along with both for the therapist and for the family to look at what you think the risks might be so that you can work on those. So that's a very important step in the process. I certainly have found repeatedly in, in asking people to do that, that they come back with, wow, I never thought about what all the benefits might be, and mm. yeah, I'm ready to move ahead, or no, I, I still have all of these doubts, I, and then we have to work on that for a while, okay? Which, in, a, in an instance of a toxic secret like this, I think that's fine to take a little more time. This has been a secret for 15 years. It can stay a secret for six more months while you work on it, okay? Yeah. In contrast to, for instance, a dangerous secret where somebody is in immediate danger. You don't have that luxury to sort of fiddle around with, well, let's just take our time here. Then once people have decided, then usually there's a plan. How are we going to do this? Uh, in this instance with this family, we looked at when there might be a school break of about four or five days because you don't want the telling of a secret to be sort of a hit and run. Um, We set up a number of conversations, the first being mom and stepmom, uh, stepdad with with the son, where they could tell him the story, tell him the reason they didn't tell him was that they had been advised not to, that they had been advised that this would be a better way for him to live and and to be protected, uh, but that now they felt he was old enough to hear this. That was followed by a second conversation between mother and son, uh, which predates mother's relationship with stepfather. There's an original relationship there, and that meeting was for her to begin to tell him good stories about his biological father because you would not want this boy to hear a secret that goes something like, you had a different father, he was an alcoholic, he crashed the car, he died. That's not a good story to go forward with, right? Right. Um, And the mom had lots of good stories about him side by side with the painful stories. She had, in fact, unbeknownst to anybody, kept items of his intending to give those to her son someday. Hmm. So this was her little secret about a secret. She had books. She had his backpack. She had uh, his sleeping bag and things like that that she was able to then give as gifts to the boy on that occasion. Then the third conversation was the parents, the boy, and the sister. 
because you would not want them to tell the boy if they were saying to you, but we're not going to tell his sister. Right. That would be terrible. Right. right. That would set up a whole other secret. And um, and so that was the process. And then they were around each other for several days. So there could be, you know, kids are funny. You tell kids something and they say, oh, yeah, okay. And then they go watch TV or they go out and play. And then they, the parents come in and say, oh, was didn't mean anything. And then two days later, they're standing at the kitchen sink, and the kid says, remember the other day when you said right. whatever? Yep. And that's when they bring it back up. So that was the, you know, the whole process of telling that you want to do carefully in contrast to what I call in the book talk show telling, which is a hit and run which communicates to people that you can open a secret and finish it in five minutes before the next commercial break. And, in fact, it's when the secret opens that the, the, that's when the real relationship work starts to happen. In your story, how did the boy do when he heard this? Well, he did very well with this. I mean, he, because, as I say, he said to me, you know, I knew they were keeping something from me. And so it was a relief. He did need to do, you know, some of his own work, just recontextualizing who am I. Um, He said, and the mom had kind of predicted this, that one of the first things he said was to them when they told him, well, that must mean I have a whole other extended family. No kidding. Where are they? Okay. Now, that was a big issue in this family because the mom had cut off from the first husband's parents. And they had respected that. They had backed off. They hadn't seen their grandson for 14 years. Mm. And, you know, she said, as we were planning opening this, she said, you know, I know I'm going to have to get in touch with them. But you know, then she said, you know, all these years I've lived in fear that we were going to come home one day and their car would be in my driveway. And what would I do? Well, they live 45 minutes away, so she was right. Yes. There was a very good likelihood of that. Absolutely. So now her, so in other words, she could also begin to live with less fear. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And when she said that, her husband looked at her and said, wow, I never knew you were thinking that. Right. So you could hear how this secret had also taken conversation off the table between the two of them, which is exactly what happens when there's a central secret. It, it touches all of the relationships. So she, she recognized this, and the boy said, where are these people? And she called them. They were thrilled to hear from her. Uh, they were over whatever the old anger and, and so on was, and they definitely wanted to meet their grandson. Um, we ended this therapy with um, a lovely ritual, which was an open adoption ceremony, where the stepfather and son adopted one another. You know, he had adopted the boy as a baby, but the boy never knew that. And so this was a party. They invited people. They were able to tell their story. Both sets of grandparents were there. And it marked the the finish of this secret and the move into a whole different phase of life. Oh, that's such a moving story. And I kept in touch with them, and the the thing that was, of course, the most interesting is that the following October, 
there were no October surprises. Um, we had planned that what they would do would be to go to the cemetery. There was no secrecy. The boy did fine. He didn't get in trouble at school or with friends or at home. And so you could see the direct connection between this secret and his behavior. I, I realize we don't have a lot of time left, and I, I want to ask you uh, for an example of a time, because it, you know this is such a convincing story you just told about, wow, it makes me want to you know, go out and do something like that. But uh, your book is very careful to suggest that in, there are some situations where secrets may be actually important to maintain. And, you, and I wonder if you could give me a very different story about a time when keeping a secret was actually the best relational thing to do. Sure. Um, you know, I think, I think first you have to think about a difference here between secrecy and healthy privacy between toxic secrecy and healthy privacy, that we all need healthy privacy. And I see, for instance, far too many couples today, young couples, that come into therapy uh, early in their marriage or living together or whatever, and quite frankly, they've told each other way too much. Uh, They have talked about every single sexual relationship they had before they met each other, Um, And for some people, that's not a good thing. Uh, And you'll hear then one or the other of them saying, I can't get the picture out of my mind that you were, you know, doing this and this. And and then they can get into quite a spin over that. So I think you do want to think about the question in my mind always is who owns the secret? That is, whose life is it directly affecting or lives? Whose well-being is affected? by there being a secret. And if the answer to that is, you know what, my prior life, whatever it may be, is not having a bad effect on my partner, then I think it it, it starts to be a bit of an indulgence to talk about every single thing that you ever did before you met this person. Okay, well, so that, that brings up an example that comes up in my practice, which is if I'm working with an individual who's having an affair or who has had an affair, mm-hmm. and they want to know, should I tell my spouse? Mm-hmm. Would I be just indulging myself to relieve my guilt by telling? Mm-hmm. Will it actually help them? Or, you know, will it increase? Is it the only way to build trust is to actually be completely yeah. honest? And yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Wow, I wish there were one answer to that question. We could do a whole show about that, <laughs> uh, because I don't think there is. I think it's which couple at what time in their relationship, under what circumstances, and from what culture. Because there are many cultures that, uh, in fact, don't make as big a deal about affairs as we do in North American culture. Uh, and so you have, to know, you have to know that. You have to think about, again, your motivation. Are you doing this to get this off your back and on to the other person's back? Can you, you know, are you ready to give the affair up or you're not ready to give the affair up? I mean, there's so many questions that go into that that there's no one answer. I I think when you read the popular literature that's been done for couples with affairs, there's like one size fits all. Uh, You must open it um, and then you must process it together and before you can ever go on as a couple. 
quite frankly, I've seen that, and I've seen couples do it differently than that, where um, somebody ends an affair, comes back to their mate, uh, starts to work on their relationship, and you know that the other person, in fact, probably knows, and for their own reasons, they've decided this is not a good conversation for us to have. So it, it's just so individual. I mean, I think if there's anything your listeners take away from, from this evening, there is not a one-size-fits-all. There is not, I think, this, you know, this talk show-telling model uh, that, that, that is going to work. I mean, I, I recall one of, the, one of the talk shows that was doing a thing on secrets. They brought on this couple and uh, had him tell her in front of, you know, however many millions of viewers that he had been having an affair and that the affair was with a man and then they brought the man on. It was the most dreadful thing I'd ever seen. Right, it's so disrespectful. And the camera moving in on her face, which was utterly crumpling, and before she knew the secret, they put under her, you know, like a little crawl, about to find out that her husband is having an affair. So it breaks empathy with the audience because they know first before she knows it's dreadful. So I think we have to think this through very carefully. Um, I think it's great to come to a therapist and talk some of this over and to give it the very healthy respect that that uh, concealing and revealing need to have. I want to close with one last question for you, or one last case example that I'm going to offer you. Sure. Which is a little bit of an unusual situation, although maybe not so unusual, where no one in the family knows the secret. And what I mean is with some, something has happened to the young child before the age of memory. Say something happens to a child before the age of three. Mm-hmm. child has no conscious narrative memory of it, and the, and the parents and the siblings don't know what's happened. But the child carries it in some way, you know, suffers various symptoms, doesn't know why. Yeah. Nobody in the family knows why. I'd love to hear about, you know, the power of that kind of secret that isn't even conscious mm. on families. It does seem to me that what we all need in our lives is some kind of coherent narrative that helps us to understand our lives. I don't know what would have happened to, you know, if you're thinking the child was sexually abused or Say, for something. Example. I mean, that may be the kind of thing that you're, that you're thinking about. What I'm struck by is that there's sort of a, an idea in the culture that what we don't remember can't hurt us. As if sort of what we don't remember it doesn't really count yeah, as a no, secret. I think, I think you're right that there is that popular idea, and I think um, scientifically we know better that there is preverbal memory. How that then gets constructed, I'm you know I don't have an easy answer for. My concern, quite frankly, is that with a child like that who's showing symptoms and nobody can can figure it all out, is that they get slapped with some psychiatric label that doesn't really fit the circumstances. And I think your question also raises, not just for a two-year-old, but for all of us, that there are things in life that we're not going to know. Um, that that all of us live with a certain degree of mystery and a certain degree of secrets from us that is is just part of the human experience. But but I think we are living in a time where the where the belief is, 
oh, we can, we can ultimately know everything. Um, and I don't think so. Dr. Evan Imberblack, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I so appreciate your refusal to fit things into one size fits all and your continuing, you know, holding out the complexity. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Dr. Evan Imberblack is the author of The Secret Life of Families. Next week, I will be talking to Catherine Murray about telling difficult stories through poetry. I want to thank Jen Hodgson for doing the sound and Maurice Lennon for the music. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. You can email me a request for a topic. You can email subscribe to get the weekly podcast and like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Thaddeus with Covering the Bases.